Well, we just want to start off by saying, wow, we just, we were blown away by having this conversation with this beautiful genius mad scientist man (laughs) yeah it was so great there's so many different elements and so many aha moments and just really opening up the brain into more curiosity about ourselves and the world and foods we eat and our genes like there's just there's just so much to unpack in this podcast yeah and and it's funny because i've said my mad scientist and as i was saying it i mean this guy's so full of heart too Mm -hmm. he deeply deeply cares about humanity and the trajectory of where we are and where we could go and and so we talked about detoxification we talked about <clears throat> some of the amazing reasons and, and tools to utilize in the form of suppository and biofilm and uh, i mean there's just so much in this podcast and so much so that we actually went a little bit longer than we usually do uh, yeah, it's the probably podcast. the longest one we've ever done so if you need to split it up in two please do because we really want you to go to the end and listen to the whole thing there's so many gems and just so much to reflect on as you're listening yeah and as you said go to the end because he's got a powerful message for everybody he does at the end for sure so enjoy welcome to the health ignited podcast with your hosts dr nick and sonia jensen we are partners parents business partners doctors yoga teachers and retreat leaders we promise to bring you real conversations to awaken and ignite your potential to live your best life possible Join us each week as we dive into topics varying from brain health, biohacking, hormones, and longevity, to relationships, parenting, meditation, and more. Together, creating community and building stronger foundations for the generations to come. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're on another episode of Health Ignited with my lovely wife, Dr. Sonia Jensen. And uh, we've got a fun topic today. I've been looking forward to talking to Spencer for quite some time. So I'm going to do a little introduction, then we're going to dive right into his story and, and how he helps people and educates people in a very unique, unique way. And uh, we're really excited to share this information with you. So Spencer Feldman has been designing and manufacturing detoxification products for over 20 years. Uh, now, I mean, this is the reality. As a species, we're faced with brand new challenges all the time. We're living in this very strange world, and there, it's having a massive impact on our mm-hmm. g- genetic integrity. Um, so he's he's come up with immediate and effective solutions to navigate the the challenge that, that we're in. And and uh, I'm going to save some of his amazing story for him to share because uh, he's got, like I said, the the perspective that you've got, Spencer, is so unique. So thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Oh, well, thanks for having me here. So let's let's dive right in. I mean, you know, when people think about detox, they think about, you know, optimal health. Um, there's so many, I guess, generic ways to look at, at the body and physiology. But I'd love to hear your sort of journey over the last 20 years into, into this field and, and how you see things and how you see health and how you see us moving forward as a species. Sure. So, um, you know, my, my origin story, if we could call it that, is uh, similar to a lot of people in alternative medicine in that um, I wasn't well, you know, tired, sick, symptoms, and um, didn't really get the answers I wanted from the traditional medical establishment. And so started reading books and uh, the internet had yet, not yet really come out. So, you know, you still had to go to libraries and uh, you had the little information you had there and you used it the best you could. And so uh, the first few things I found uh, were the old naturopathic thing uh, products from the last century and beforehand. Uh, and if we go back, um, I suppose the, the three classic kind of detox protocols that have been used 
recently and then as far back as 100 years, would be IV chelation and coffee enemas and a liver gallbladder flush. And so I started making products for myself. And while I was doing that, I was also going to, you know, um, medical conferences, you know, alternative medicine, functional medicine, things like that. And I got to meet lots of um, doctors who are very uh, well known in their field. And some of them would you know, ask me, oh, young man, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm making this for myself, um, making that. And they started asking me if, you know, I could make it for them, if they could try it. So I ended up um, making products for other people, for doctors. I found out I was good at it. I liked it. It was a good way to serve other people. Uh, And so the first uh, thing I did is I bumped into a study about chelation. It said that uh, there was a study in Switzerland and uh, people who who had done chelation had a reduction in cancer and heart attacks, 90 and 86%. I don't remember which was which, but I mean, that's huge Mm -hmm. to have that. I don't like needles. Um, so uh, I uh, came up with a way of making it as a suppository because it turns out that suppositories are almost as effective as needles. Oh, that's not the right way to say it. Um, the needles are clearly the most effective. Inhalation is also very effective. Sublinguals are effective, but it's hard to keep something large under your tongue for more than 10 seconds without washing away. Intranasal is effective, but you can't put that much in. Inhalation, again, you can't put that much in. But suppository, uh, like the sublingual, it goes against a vein. In this case, it's the, the portal vein. And so bad, you could keep it there for an hour. So um, it isn't as good as an IV, but it's pretty darn close. Uh, in some ways, I like it better because it's uh, slower. You don't have to worry about dripping in, um, you know, or overdoing it for someone. It, it goes in gradually. So I got a patent on a form of chelation, which uh, uses magnesium EDTA. The original EDTAs were all sodium EDTA, and you'd have to mix a little bit of painkiller when you did the IVs because they'd burn. And so uh, I figured out, well, if we made it a fully reacted salt, if I added some magnesium to it, it wouldn't burn as much. Uh, And so I decided to make it as magnesium potassium since uh, those were things that people typically needed who would be doing chelation. Uh, And so one of the benefits as opposed to the traditional calcium-based chelation is as we get older, calcium actually acts like a, a toxic metal because it gets in places you don't want. It's called dystrophic calcium. It gets in the joints and the breast tissue and the prostate and the brain and the arteries. So that was my first uh, foray into the field is finding a way to make chelation available to people in their homes and to alter it slightly in a way that I thought made more sense. They couldn't offer that as an IV because that would have made it a new drug and then they would have cost millions of dollars and there, there wasn't anyone who was interested in making that, uh, that particular concoction available as an IV. So I believe we actually had a better way of doing it than the IVs because we had a better formulation. And so I'm looking around and I'm calling people and saying, how did you like it? How is it working? Oh, that's great news. Why did you get it? And I had thought that people were doing chelation for circulation, which was the main thing when I was studying it. But most people said, no, we're, we're doing it for heavy metals. I said, oh, well, that's interesting. Well, so you're doing it for toxins. Okay, but metals aren't the only toxins. As a matter of fact, there's chemical toxins and they, you know, there might be 10 or 12 metal toxins you might be exposed to in your life. There's millions of metal or chemical toxins. So what can we do for that? And so then I bump into um, the coffee enema, uh, which has got an interesting story. Um, the, you know, it was, I think, World War I and they were about to do abdominal surgery on an injured soldier in Germany. And 
Uh, so they were about to give him an enema. And the, the nurse said, doctor, we, we don't have any more warm water to give the enema before surgery. What do we do? And he looks around and he goes, yeah, use that pot of coffee. Right? And, <laughs> that's how it started. That's, that's oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, wow. you, um, the Germans are, are fantastically observant and creative people, medically speaking. Mm -hmm. I, I love what they do. There's a lot of stories like this uh, in the German literature. So um, they, they did. And the, the, the patient had less pain and a faster recovery. And they said, okay, we don't know why coffee is working so well, but it sure is. Let's keep doing it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so what it turns out is what coffee does is stimulates uh, P450 enzymes, phase one detoxification, which is what removes or attaches an oxygen to a chemical to make it more soluble. See, if a chemical or a poison is water soluble, then it will do damage, but then you urinate it out and, it, and then it's over, right? Or the toxin's out. Mm -hmm. It's when the toxins aren't soluble in water that we have a hard time getting rid of them. Sometimes they're insoluble as crystals, and we'll talk about that a little later on. And sometimes they're fat soluble, and they get caught up in the membranes and in the fat tissue of the body. So a lot of what detoxification is, is about making toxins soluble. So imagine you've got a greasy dish. If you just take the greasy dish and you dip it in water, um, the grease isn't really going to come off. Mm -hmm. But if you dip it in soapy water, it will start coming off, and the soap is a surfactant that uh, interfaces between the water and the grease in a way to make the grease soluble and off it comes. So that's the process of detoxification as I see it. We're trying to take these things that are fat soluble in the body and insoluble later, but fat soluble in this case, meant render them water soluble so we can urinate them out. So the coffee enema works by doing the first of three stages in this pathway of detox. It makes the fat solubles partially water soluble. That's phase one. And then you have phase two, which is the conjugation of this now change chemical to something like glutathione or uh, glucuronidase or uh, glucuronic acid or any of the other um, the methyl, methyl sulfurs, any of the other chemical things that can attach and then out they go. And sometimes you'll hear stories of people that detox and get sicker. Mm -hmm. Now, I'd like to address this for a moment because it happens and it's something that we should understand. There is two ways in which I see that can happen. One is they think they're detoxing and they're not. For instance, they're taking some toxic zeolite or toxic chlorella that's filled with metals mm -hmm. and they take it and they feel terrible and they check their urine and all these metals are coming out and the practitioner goes, oh, wow, you're just having a Herx reaction. You're clearing all these metals. No, no, that was the metals that the person was taking in with a bad product. So a Herx that, reaction. that happens just way too often. I mean, that what you just described there, I think that's, you know, it's important for people to really appreciate what you just said there. That, that's, that's yeah. Huge. yeah. So, well, you know, a lot of people are, are very well-meaning and um, stubborn, like I was about, oh, I just have to push through it. I'm just detoxing. I'll take more. I'll take more. I'm feeling worse. And it's a vicious cycle and a person can really hurt themselves that way. So just understand that's a trap we can fall in. Uh, the other is if someone uh, stimulates phase one, but doesn't have enough phase two, what they've done is they've taken these fat soluble toxins that maybe aren't moving around too much. They're causing problems, but they're pretty much in one spot. Let's say the abdominal fat. And now they've made them more soluble, not soluble enough to leave, but soluble enough to move. And now they get up into the nerve tissue and into the brain and into the glands. And now they're sick as a dog. And again, they think, oh, I'm detoxing. Like, no, you're half detoxing. You've actually, the phase one actually makes the toxin more toxic, more reactive. So people who um, have a phase two, 
two problem as part of the, the constellation of what's going on for them. If you activate phase one and don't support phase two, you, these people get worse. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then I said, okay, so what we really need to do is not just the coffee enema, we need to also add all of these cofactors. And there's five or six of them that we need to add in uh, for all the different conjugation, path- conjugation pathways that uh, phase one will activate. And so we added those all in, we put it again in again as a suppository because, you know, I don't want to take a enema with a, you know, cups and cups of coffee and lay on my side for 30 minutes. I, you know, I, Nick has some stories around that. Oh, right. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we will do it, right? Because if yeah. it's where we get to our, in our health, but how much more convenient and how many more people would do it? How much more patient compliance would you get if not only was it more convenient, but it was actually more effective because you have, we have now the, the scientific understanding to understand the cofactors, the phase two. So that's the Xenoplex product. The metacardium product was our uh, magnesium-based chelation. The Xenoplex was our organic coffee phase two complex. Again, there's, and still that's, there's yet one more thing. You know, it just kept leading me down, you know, one thing led to another. So now I'm starting to get really great results. I got rid of my own uh, multiple chemical sensitivities. Um, it used to be if I was exposed to uh, cigarettes or diesel fuel, especially um, behind carbs of truck driving diesel, um, I would just um, really not become the best version of myself. And I'd have to warn everyone around me, don't take this personally. Don't talk to me. I'm going to be in a horrific mood for the next half hour. Just just ignore, you know, I just have to wait this out. There's nothing you can do. Um, and that was my phase two. I don't think people really appreciate what you, what what that is. I mean, multiple chemical sensitivity. I mean, these people, including yourself, like this is massively debilitating, you know, and, and we don't commonly, you know, understand, I think all our symptoms that, that show up for us in life. And so all of us are experiencing some version of that, but when it's to the degree that you just shared like that this is a, this is a really big deal so I, hopefully hopefully you can elaborate a little bit more for people to really appreciate just how challenging that can be well i think what that's a good point you make and i think what happens is when we don't under there are a series of problems that can happen in the human physiology that seem like someone's being a hypochondriac right mm-hmm. if someone's low on co2 they have anxiety they have fatigue they have all these issues but since doctors aren't trained to look at CO2 in a blood test, and if it is low, they think, oh, they hypoventilated because they were nervous about getting a blood draw. They don't get it. If, so uh, low CO2 is one of these things that will classically make someone think they'll be called a hypochondriac. No, it's the same way women who are, were told they were hysterical, history of the womb, when they were going through their men, you know, the luteal phase, their PMS phase. No, this, they had a hormonal issue going on. Maybe they couldn't detoxify some of their hormones. And it was, it was upsetting them. And it was, you know, they didn't feel good physically and psychologically. Uh, it's the same with multiple chemical sensitivities. When you've got five people driving in a car or walking into an elevator with someone who's got a lot of cologne, and one person suddenly goes you know, loses, you know, they're, they're, they're feeling terrible. They can't breathe. You know, they're getting lightheaded or whatever their particular symptoms are. And everyone else goes, no, you're crazy. Well, no, it's just, you don't have that particular imbalance and they do. So um, the number of things that we used to think were uh, delusional, like delusional parasitosis. No, it's Morgellons disease. There's something coming out of these poor people. And I think we do a lot of people a disservice I rather, you know, I think an honorable way to handle it is 
Um, I don't know what's going on for you, but I believe you and I'll do my best to try to help you. But to tell these people that nothing's happening and they're crazy when they're poisoned by something or affected by something, you know, it's, it's an, um, it's not a kindness to them. Do you think that these individuals, um, there is a genetic predisposition or there is something in their physiology that makes them more prone to, uh, because I feel like we're all sensitive to our environment, especially in our today's world, we're just bombarded with chemicals and things, whether it's from our food or EMF or all the various stresses that we have, but then some individuals vitality will be able to shift more easily, whereas somebody else will get really drawn into it or maybe the other individual that's not feeling it isn't tuned in to their body. Like, what do you feel is the mechanism there of the predisposition? Oh, I think genetics plays a huge role. And uh, look at the 40 to 55% of people with MTHFR uh, uh, SNPs, uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms, uh, or another way of saying, look at the number of people that have a particular gene defect that makes them unable to methylate properly, and therefore their neurotransmitters are, are, are not being done properly. They're not, their homocysteine is through the roof, or you know, they're having all these problems. Um, it was an amazing thing when we started, um, you know, antibiotics were an, were an amazing thing and saved millions of lives in, world, in the world war, right? Mm -hmm. And the, 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 the unintended consequence of our medical system is people who would unfortunately die uh, in, uh, in their childhood years um, are reproducing, are getting to the age of reproducing, reproducing. And what that means is people who don't have strong genes are reproducing. Now, what I think the proper response is to that is we need to learn how to repair our genetics. Um, because, you know, the, so, and we can get into that later on in the talk. Um, the body does have amazing gene repair systems, but um, we definitely, as a species now, have a lot more genetic problems than we've ever had before. And we're going to be challenged to learn how to work with those. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute to, to finish up with the, uh, the chemical detox. So I, mean, I was making these um, Xenoplex coffee glutathi uh, glutathione suppositories. And I would say 95% of my multiple chemical sensitivity is gone. Uh, I don't like breathing in um, fumes, but, um, and I, but I don't, I'll lose my, my, balance as a result. Um, and, you know, out of a hundred people with multiple chemical sensitivities, maybe five of them will have a hard time with it. Um, the rest of them will pretty much, you know, with them, you know, take it and it's, it's not too bad. Um, a few of them, um, they will take it and they'll really have a hard time. And what I explained to them is, well, okay. Um, I know you'd never want to do this again, but trust me, take half of one. It'll still be hard, but it won't be quite as hard. And you're going to have to work your way through it. And, you know, we were able to uh, get them to the point where they would also have a lot of benefit in terms of, you know, resolution from their, well, uh, the, supporting that system for them. But then I was saying, okay, well, why are some people still having problems? And what uh, we came up with, I realized is, wait a minute, there was still one great old school detox um, that I had. Um, made available, and that was the liver gallbladder flush. And that's where you drink uh, half to um, two cups of olive oil and some Epsom salts and uh, some lemon juice. 
and it just all uh, you know, dilate the sphincter of ODI and it flush out all these stones. Um, that's uh, an uncomfortable thing to do to drink that much olive oil. And so, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, it, yeah. it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And um, some of the stones that come out are things that we put in. So it's possible, you know, to have these people say, oh my God, look at how many stones I came out. I'm like, go grab one out of the, out of the toilet, you put a glove on, go grab another toilet, squeeze it. I'm like, oh, it's completely soft. I'm like, right. So that was just sort of like a chemical reaction of what you were doing. Now, things definitely come out with a liver gallbladder flush, but um, the downside is not um, some of what's coming out is what you're making. And then you're also dumping, you're flushing all the bile out of them to do that. And it's a, lack of bile that is what's causing some of that in the first place, right? Bile is supposed to keep everything liquid. And when we, and when we reabsorb it, which is why we get re, uh, enterohepatic recirculation of toxins. But when you do the classic liver gallbladder flush, um, you've now flushed all the bile out of someone and now there's no bile and they have to reproduce it. Uh, so you can end up with a little bit of a vicious circle. So I said, okay, let's remake this one as suppository because we're right by the liver. And let's not waste all the bile. As a matter of fact, let's do the opposite. Let's um, let's increase bile production with all the things that the liver needs to make bile. So we did all those things. And now we were able to get to the point where we have very, very few Herx reactions. And the ones we do, you know, and it's pretty rare now, um, I'll just say, look, you know, um, we're, if you get a Herx reaction, there must be an enormous amount of toxicity. And I'm sorry, you're going to go through it. But what I can tell you is if you're patient, and you stay with it, it probably won't last more than a week. Uh, and it'll get better each day. You know, trust me, just hang in there. And, you know, they do. And then by the end of the week, they're, they're finally out the other end of it. So, um, you know, that was, that was the, our, uh, the first entry into um, making uh, alternative products was trying to remake those things for people. That's amazing. So just to highlight for people, so we talked about uh, the coffee enema. We talked about... Uh, using binders and chelators to pull things out. And then we talked about the, the gallbladder flush, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the three sort of big things. And can you, can you tell, tell for people a little bit more, maybe about the, about the basic anatomy and just, you know, you're putting a suppository and you have this direct connection to the liver. If you can just kind of speak to that a little bit more so people can see just, you know, it might incentivize them to, to try suppositories more as well, but just sure. if you could talk about the proximity and just the blood supply yeah. there. Yeah. So why would someone do a suppository, right? So we make five, six suppositories now. Metacardine was the, the metal, uh, was the metal chelating concept. The Xenoplex, the chemical detox coffee enema, the glitamins was the, the one for the liver. Uh, we have one called Regen uh, Rejuvalon, which is um, superoxide dismutase, and then we, and some others, uh, catalase. And then we have one called Notoplex, which is serapeptase. And the, the reason why we would do a suppository at all is because some things aren't, uh, they don't survive digestion. That's the only reason you'd ever do an IV or an injection is because the, yeah. uh, the, the stomach is designed to um, break down proteins. You know, we have the acids and then the alkalis and the enzymes and some drugs, you know, they don't make through that system intact. And so you can inject them, but there's no digestive aspect in the last, you know, two inches of a rectum, but there's, um, and to digest there, you know, your intestines are there. So we have the ability to absorb without breaking anything down. So that's the benefit of a suppository. Um, you can take something that might taste terrible, uh, something that might get totally destroyed by the digestion and take it, uh, and take it uh, as a suppository and have no 
uh, have not, don't have either of those issues. And if you look at the anatomy of, of the, the blood supply into the pelvis, uh, we've got a number of blood vessels, some very large ones, the, um, uh, the portal vein, and then you have ones that are going into the, uh, the sexual organs, uh, into, the, uh, into the abdomen. So it's, um, there's an enormous um, blood supply right there. Uh, that's actually how people get hemorrhoids is because one of the blood vessels will fail and will bulge out and come out. So uh, the um, ability to uh, directly access the pelvic area uh, and the liver uh, is, and the kidneys is, is enormous. It's a, it's a great location, but mainly, um, so for instance, our endosterol, which is our product we use with the prostate, all of those ingredients you could take orally. There's none of them, none of them will break down orally, but you're an inch away from the prostate. So in that case, it's location. Now with um, a, lot of, a lot of the other ingredients and the other products, they won't survive digestion. So suppositories is, is a route to bypass having the need to do an, an IV. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Have you tried these protocols or maybe you've heard stories of children with autism or ADHD um, use any of these protocols that you have? We have heard people using them and, you know, with those kind of conditions, it's, uh, it's a mixed bag, you know, I mean, with one kid, uh, uh, you know, hyperbaric will be really great and they'll speak for the first time, um, with other kids, you know, um, it's an MTHFR with somebody else, you know, they've got some vitamin D receptor issues with somebody else. It's a dysbiosis. Somebody else it's a blood brain barrier issue. It's, um, it's a comp, you know, it, it's sort of like chronic fatigue. You know, one name, but you know, one end result, but lots of things that could be causing it. So, um, the only thing I wouldn't use with a child would be the metacardium because be since it is calcium free, I don't like to um, pull calcium out of uh, um, someone that's growing. So, I would use if they were, uh, and the other thing is um, you've got to be careful uh, not to use EDTA if you've got a high mercury load. And we can talk about what to do with the mercury load another time. Because uh, you don't want to redistribute mercury. So, sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> uh, so, you know, um, those were our, our first three things. And then we made a few other suppositories. I had one fellow who's now passed on to the, the next, next experience. He asked me to make um, some stuff for the prostate. So we did that and, you know, got some really great results with people with their prostates. Um, yeah, so I have a couple. Go ahead. I was just going to ask a comment just because just we're on the suppository uh, discussion. I mean, a lot of people suffer with hemorrhoids. So many. What, what's your go-to protocol for, for hemorrhoids? Just give I don't, that I don't really have a go-to protocol. The first thing I would say is don't take metacardium because it's a salt and it'll sting. Right. Um, and, you know, if they have hemorrhoids, that's going to sting. So that's kind of a contraindication. Uh, I mean, it's not an absolute if someone has to because, you know, they've got, you know, iron poisoning and they have so much pain in their nerves they can't move, then you know, take a little preparation H and, and get through it. Um, but, um, you know, for hemorrhoids, you know, uh, I haven't made a, a study of it in my off the cuff thoughts would be things like bioflavonoids and things to strengthen the integrity of the blood vessel wall. And then, uh, I'd probably want to get an ultrasound of the liver and take a look at the, the flow of going in and the flow going out and, um, you know, see if there's pressure building up and, you know, what's going on in there, that there's so much back pressure that it's blowing a, a, a vessel out of, out of whack. Mm -hmm. Cool. Go ahead. 
Well, I, sorry, I, I know you had a few things to say. I was just kind of wondering on um, logistics of like when people should be doing these protocols, how mm. often in a year, somebody sure. that maybe doesn't have any apparent issues, can they do it once a year as like a flush and kind of a reset? Like what are your suggestions on how people can use this in their lives? Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the first thing in terms of timing is I don't like taking detox in the evening. I know some people do. Um, because you're not going to be moving and you're not going to be drinking water while you're sleeping. And if I'm detoxing, I want, I want a little bit of, you know, lymphatic movement by walking around and I want to be able to drink water so I can flush the stuff out. I don't want to have it sitting in my bladder for eight hours while I'm sleeping. Uh, so I like to do my detoxes, you know, mid to late afternoon you could, and morning time is fine too. Um, a couple of caveats. Um, you know, the first time you do any kind of detox should probably be on a Friday when you're not going to be social because you never know how you're going to react to it, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, you might, your body might st start dumping stuff out and you wouldn't want to be in a social, you know, engagement and, and on finding out that your body is completely dumping all the chemicals that you absorb, that a person absorbed when they were, had a, had a career spraying lawns or something, right? And they're just mm -hmm. constantly dumping and flushing. So the first time, you know, um, and the other thing is if you do it earlier in the day, you can pay attention to it. So for instance, you know, if you do uh, a chelation and suddenly you notice your vision gets better, well, that's a really good sign. So it might, might've been a magnesium deficiency that might've been blood flow to the eyes. They're very sensitive and you won't necessarily notice that if you're sleeping through it. Right. So you can, you can use these things to, you know, uh, to inform you based on how you respond. The, um, in terms of how often, um, that's based on what kind of life someone has. So if somebody is, um, you know, lives uh, an organic farmer uh, on a mountaintop and beautiful fresh air and clean water. Yeah, once a year, you know, uh, they could do the, the three, the metacardium, xenoplex, and glidamine. It's a phase one, phase two, phase three. And that would sort of be like the, the oil change for your car, you know, at 5,000 miles. It's just a nice thing, whether you feel like you need it or not. Um, so, okay, you could roughly divide people into, into two categories. There are some people who... Um, never feel bad their whole life and, and then it all catches up with them in one day and they drop like a stone, which is probably the, the way I'd like to go, right? I, I would, that would be the body that I would want. And then there's the people who feel every little thing that goes wrong. And the advantage to the people who um, feel every little thing is they can then, if they're paying attention, say, oh, you know what? I, I don't feel good when I drink milk. I don't feel good when I eat wheat. I might be allergic. I'm going to leave those alone. Or I don't, I feel better when I do this. I don't. And so they have the sensitivity to determine they're the canaries in the coal mine. The other people, they can't feel when they're better and they can't feel when they're worse. And so the people who are in that category, who are really strong, um, they might come and say, well, I don't need it. I don't, have no, I don't have any symptoms. Okay, congratulations. You've got a great set of genes and your body doesn't give you any warning signals. Um, you don't have to take any of these. But if you do, you might find that the last five, 10 years of your life um, are a little bit more pleasant, right? Your memory is a little sharper. Your energy is still good. You're not in pain. You know, you might get a little more time. Um, for the people that feel that every little thing that happens to them, they'll notice it immediately. They'll say, wow, you know, I took this. And um, I'll give you an example. There was one woman, I got a phone call from this woman. She was 85 years old, thanking me for getting rid of it because her headache was gone. Uh, from the glitamins. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm, I'm very happy for you, ma'am. She goes, no, you don't understand. My headache is finally gone. I'm like, well, 
ma'am, how, how long did you have a headache for? She goes, 60 something, 70 years, cool. right? So she was like a, kid, a little girl, she's had a headache. And so what she must've had was a gallstone trapped and the gallbladder, if you know Chinese medicine, the gallbladder meridian goes up, you know, and can cause headaches. Um, so, you know, it's never too late, you know, mm -hmm. to, uh, to take some general maintenance care of your body. Um, if someone is in general health, you know, they have no real serious complaints. Once a year is a nice, nice flush. If somebody either has complaints um, or maybe they work in someplace toxic, like they uh, work in a dry cleaning store, right? And they're exposed to solvents all the time. Uh, or uh, they live, you know, right off a major highway or something like that. Yeah, sure. You could do it twice or three times a year. Um, it's up to you. And with that protocol, so you're using the Xenoplex, the Glitamins, and the, and the, what's the other one called again? The Metacardium. Metacardium. Are you using them around the same time? Are you going through one? Or like, I mean, oh, I okay. Right. Yeah. right. So there's 10 per box. And what I would, you know, the way I designed it is if you buy a box of each, then you have 30 suppositories and each day you take a different one. So you constantly rotate through. Mm. Um, and that's because we don't want the metacardium every day because um, yeah. we don't want to drop um, the blood calcium down too high, uh, down too low. But on the other hand, um, pulling out dystrophic calcium out of the places it doesn't belong is important. Yeah. So that right. allows you to kind of, it's sort of like a rinse and wash cycle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then are you re recommending remineralization orally with, with these protocols? If, as it's well, if it's just one box, then I don't worry about it unless somebody already knows that they're low. Um, if it's going to be more than a box uh, and they want to do a chelator, yeah, something trace, some trace minerals um, taken at 24 hour intervals off. So if you do a chelator 24 hours later, you know, you could do the trace minerals because you, you don't want to the trace minerals competing with the toxic metals for the chelator to absorb. And so something like a little zinc, a little copper, a little molybdenum, um, you know, uh, calcium, you don't have to worry about magnesium, potassium, it's already there. Uh, so sure. Yeah. Um, there's, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, but I do want to eventually talk about electrons and, and the electrical body and that kind of thing. But just before we go there, can you talk a little bit about the biofilm buster that you use? Because Part of this is, I think, understanding where these where these critters live, where the toxins are taking residence, where things get stuck, and and when to use utilize something like a biofilm buster. Right. Yeah. So biofilms was actually the next thing that I. Okay. So um, the timeline of, of, of the products was um, after I did the detox products, uh, I got a call from my wife at the time. Um, she was visiting uh, in uh, her parents with our kids. 3,000 miles away, maybe more. And so my youngest, uh, my eldest, Julian, had some kind of infection. She says, what do I do? And I'm like, well, you know, what are her symptoms? And I'm like fever and, you know, runny nose and malaise. I'm like, oh, gosh. I mean, that could be a virus. It could be a bacteria. <laughs> it could be anything. And, you know, I, I said, all right, go to the store and buy this, 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 and this. And I don't know which ones he needs, but it'll be a little bit of everything. And it set me thinking, I'm like, I need a way to have a go-to for any kind of infection. So all right, what are the infections? Viral, bacterial, fungal, parasitic. Okay. And so uh, one of the first things I look up is ellagic acid. And ellagic acid in it, it, uh, inhibits integrase, which is the enzyme that viruses, many viruses use to get into the cell. My like, great viruses check. So then I'm looking and I'm looking at it and I read a little further, I'm like, wait, it causes the DNA, it inhibits gyrase. 
So it causes the DNA of the bacteria to unspool, so it can't operate properly. Virus bacteria. Um, it inhibits chitin synthase, which is what uh, fungus needs to grow. Hmm. Viruses, fungus, and bacteria. And, and I said, all right, let, let's just type, just type it and see what happens. Allergic acid and, and parasites, and the literature comes out. We don't know why allergic acid is effective against parasites, but it is. So now I, so the Allagica product was something uh, which was sort of my, no matter what I've got, if I'm not feeling well, I'm going to take some. Um, I got a tick on my a bite on my arm uh, and I live where Lyme is. And my whole arm from my elbow to my wrist was bright red within two days, three days. And all right, I said, okay, let's, let's see, let's see what happens. And I started taking really heroic doses of this Allagica product, which is not just Allagica, but has something um, and some things in it to make the elagic acid more effective, keep the elagic acid from causing the blood to clot, and has a little bit of biofilm busting in it. And within an hour, and I could send you guys photos, I could, because what you do is when you, you're trying to see if this works, you, you take a magic marker and you draw the lines on around the infection, right? So you know if it's progressing. And, you know, within an hour, you could see whoosh, down to here and then down to here. And then, and within a few hours, it was gone. Now, I went ahead and took antibiotics anyway. It's one of the one of one of the very few times I've taken an antibiotic since I was a kid because I don't want to mess with Lyme. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but and what I noticed is I had to take the allergic the allergic acid every hour to have that effect, and I did feel like staying up every hour for I don't know how long. But really, I was just concerned with Lyme. Um, so I had I started having this respect for this, and I said, okay. Um, might not work with some really really aggressive things unless you take it continuously, but um, we've had a, a lot of really great successes for things that aren't quite as as aggressive as that. And so I said, well, you know, why would it work on some things? You know, what, what is it making it work in there? And how could we make something work better? And so I bump into biofilms. Now, um, bacteria don't, okay, obviously that's, biofilms is a, is a whole hour talk. Um, so Koch, who was the uh, scientist who gave us the germ theory, basically, um, he was, um, you know, he would get a bug that he thought was causing disease, you know, from someone and then give it to someone else. And if it caused the same disease, he said the bug causes the disease. But what he didn't recognize is the kind of bugs that you can transfer like that are not biofilm bugs. These are free flowing, free flowing bugs. A bug you can get from someone will free flow in the water and then you can give it to someone else. There's a whole class of bugs that don't do that. There's a whole class of bugs that will stick to the side of the test tube. So he gets one of those bugs, he puts it in a test tube and he pours it in. It doesn't pour in because it's stuck on the side. And then he said, well, this bug didn't cause this because look, I didn't get this reaction. So well-meaning, you know, well but he, he let us down the garden path because we missed seeing 95% of the bugs that are causing disease. Most of the, the really nasty ones, yes, you can do that with, but the chronic diseases are almost all biofilms. And what a biofilm is, is basically this mucusy, sticky film that the bacteria, fungi, par parasites secrete to uh, protect themselves from the immune system and to cling on to things. So if you look at the slime that's on, um, on a uh, compost pile, that slime is biofilm, right? So uh, when you have these biofilms, and if you look at them under a microscope, you'll see that they have fluid transportation systems, um, they have communication networks, they have 
what look like skyscrapers for living in. They have their own police force. I mean, they're a community. They're, they're a small city and they're very resilient um, because they have so many different things. It's not just a one bacteria. It's a bacteria with a, with a fungi and then a virus. They're all living in a communal way where they support each other. And one of the, uh, so two things happen. That sounds beautiful. Um, <laughs> if you can take that perspective, um, right. you have to res- respect the complexity and tenacity of life in that way. Yeah. Um, absolutely. But also devastating people's health. Mm-hmm. So what happens with these biofilms is the muca- uh, the white blood cells will get about one cell deep, one, you know, one cell deep into them. And then that's it. They're paralyzed. They can't get in. And so the, the infections are just sitting there behind this biofilm, just completely unfazed. Now, the other trick they have up their sleeve is a certain percentage of all these things will always be dormant. So that means even if you can get the, um, if you use a drug to kill them, like let's say you find some drug to go and kill the bacteria or whatever it is you're killing, you'll only kill 99% of it. 1% is dormant, it's not metabolically active. And so when, less, when, the, when the drug is removed, they grow, they repopulate the entire film and the person's back with it again. So getting rid of the biofilm or at least um, learning how to uh, dissemble it slightly um, is very powerful because it allows things that um, aren't quite so poisonous to the body to still work. So I think the reason why we were getting such great results with Elagica is uh, we were, if you can break the biofilm down, then things that might have only a mild toxic effect on the bug and no toxicity for you can work as opposed to having something that just kills everything. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then we started thinking, well, what can we do for the biofilms and how do we go after them? Uh, so we made a, a serapeptase a suppository and a serapeptase is a great way to, it's a, the enzyme that silkworms use to break out of their cocoon. And it's a great way to break down biofilms. Um, again, it won't survive digestion. So suppository is a great way. And so then I got into this, um, this thing, uh, with bitters because I said, okay, even if we break down the biofilm, we still are going to be left with that 1% of dormant bugs. And if 1% of dormant bugs uh, exponentially increase, then you're back where you started in a day. So I realized we're, we're never really going to dis- we're never going to kill all of these things. That's um, if we want to do that. I mean, we would, the damage we would do to the human body in order to have something toxic enough to kill all of these bugs completely in some, certain cases is, is tremendous because they can become dormant. And so you're either stuck taking these drugs for a long, long time, hoping that, you know, two or three or four cycles later, when all the dormant ones have finally woken up, you've got them, but then you could be on this for a long time. So I thought, I said, well, wait a minute. If the bugs that Coke was missing were these biofilms, these are really composting agents. These are not, these are opportunistic bugs. They're not aggressive ones. They're not coming after you so much as looking for compost. So I said, well, what if we could make a deal with them? What if we could say, look, you're welcome to live in the body as long as you stay asleep. And then when I'm dead, you can turn me to compost. And if you can be patient, right, it's a win-win. You just have to be patient for 50 more years, and then you'll have the whole thing. What do you care? You're sleeping. So So my question was, how do I keep them asleep? And so the, the dormant bugs are looking for an environment that seems suitable. So what happens is bugs are floating around, they are where they are. And when they taste, 
that the environment has food and is safe, they wake up and they grow. And when they sense that the, the environment is not safe, they encapsulate, they sporulate, right? So in some ways you drive bugs to become dormant and sporulate by virtue of the poison that, you could, that we use. Not that I'm against using those. I myself used it when I thought I might have Lyme. It's just understanding for what things we use it for and in what way, right? We're learning to become more savvy about how to use these tools. And so one of the things that um, I bumped into was uh, how would plants deal with this? Because plants deal with the same viruses. They deal with viruses and fungi and bacteria and parasites, and they've got to have some answer to that. So, you know, most... Most medicine, whether traditional or, uh, uh, or allopathic, comes from plants because they are nature's ph pharmacy. They have been coming up with chemical defenses to infections for as long as they've been being parasitized and attacked by these things. Um, and the two main ones they use are essential oils and bitters. Uh, and those each in their own way have ways to um, either kill or confuse or make dormant the various bugs. And what I realized is we don't get them in our diet anymore. Now, if you happen to have a, a garden, you can go out and, and you know, have a fresh peppermint leaf and you'll get you know, menthol and peppermint oil. And if you have fresh um, oregano outside your, your window, you can have some fresh oregano and you'll get oregano oil. But these oils are very volatile. So by the time we get them from wherever we're buying them from a store, they're long gone. So our food has no essential oils left in it, very little. Uh, and in terms of bitters, well, apples and grapes in the times of the Romans were bitter and, and tart. You know, it was like crab apples and, and, you know, they weren't like these super sweet ones we have now. What we've done is we have um, genetic, we have chosen to breed sweeter and sweeter fruits and vegetables so that they taste better. When someone gets a really, um, bitter and astringent carrot. They don't like it. They want a sweet carrot. So we have chosen from our tastes to filter out for the genetics of the bitter plants, but that's where all the medicine is. Mm -hmm. The bitter, bitter, you know, the bitter flavor is what uh, resensitizes our insulin receptors. It's what causes the parasites to become confused and the, the bugs to get confused. It, it's, um, it interferes with their communication network. So um, eat. So what I did is we came up with this thing called zoibin, which was a mix of essential oils and bitters that we would get if we were eating from a garden 2000 years ago, then we would be getting these things. Um, and, you know, when you take bitters, it's kind of a, a, an epigenetic conversation uh, with your DNA. So, you know, when I take a bottle of zoibin, oh, that, that horrible taste is actually, so right now, although I, I, you can't see it and I can't see it, my DNA, parts of my DNA my, are opening up and genes are being read and chemicals and proteins are being made now as a result of that taste. I have interacted and communicated with my DNA through the bitters, through that hormetic uh, experience, and now... I have a whole pharmacy of things being produced in my body to go after bugs and, and to do all sorts of things with, you know, resensitizing insulin and secreting, um, you know, um, certain um, uh, digestive things. So I have all these benefits. I'm, you know, we could talk for an hour on just on what bitters do. 
So, you know, there's a lot of ways in which we can talk to our DNA. If you take a freezing cold shower at the end of a hot shower, you are opening up certain parts of your DNA and, and causing proteins to be made. If you take a sauna, you get heat shock proteins to be made. So learning how to communicate with our own bodies at the genetic level is really useful. Uh, and that's part of what that does. But so we started um, doing the, the Zoibin and uh, I started getting um, photographs in, the, uh, in my email of things coming out of people. Uh, and they were alive when they came out. Wow. Um, uh, liver flukes and worms and things were coming out. And I said, wow, that's, um, that's really amazing. Uh, we had one woman who had cups of, of things come out of her. Um, and uh, she, know, she told me they were alive because when she put a uh, chopstick in to pull it out, it would wrap itself around the chopstick. Jeez. So um, indeed, you know, uh, it is possible to make these things leave. Um, the idea when dealing with parasites, from my perspective, is um, I don't want to poison them because if I do, I run the risk of either killing them where they are. And now when they, they, when they break down all of the toxins, all the bacteria and, paras uh, and viruses and toxins that were in them are now going to come out or they get encapsulated in a little cyst somewhere inside my body. So I don't want to do that. And if I just irritate them, then they may decide to wiggle deeper in, get up into the brain, get it deep into the liver. I want to make them decide to leave alive because if they're going to leave, they have to choose to on their own volition. And so when we started seeing living things come out of people, I knew I was on the right track because it meant that they had decided on their own, that this was no longer a place they wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And so um, that got me on to the next thing, which is uh, the whole uh, thing with electrons. Yes. I, I know we've gone for almost an hour. Are you okay for a little bit more time? Oh, sure. Yeah, okay, great. Because I really want There's people so much to, here. to... Yeah, I know, it's so, so amazing. So let's you know, let's talk about electrons, the, the crystallization of our tissue and... Um, yeah, just take it away. <laughs> so um, I had a, a dear friend who has passed of stage four cancer. Um, and she was, um, you, so back over. I was looking into the parasite problem because um, I had some, you know, a friend who had some serious problems with parasites and couldn't seem to get them out no matter what she did. So uh, I'm not quite sure why, but I look up parasites and electricity. I'm not sure how I thought of that. And if you go onto YouTube and you type in worms and electricity on a YouTube, you will see um, videos of people who want to go fishing. So they'll take their car battery and they'll take it to the side of a river and they'll attach probes to the positive and negative and stick it by the riverbed where there's water and run electricity through the ground. And you will see worms come out of the soil and then they can grab them and go fishing. Wow. And I said, well, that's interesting. Worms don't like electricity. Why don't they like electricity? And I thought, okay, well, worms like biofilms are opportunistic. Parasites like biofilms are opportunistic. They're looking for a compost pile. And my job is not to look like a compost pile to them. And then I'll eat them and they'll stay in spore form and they'll pass through and I won't know it and they won't know it. And they'll just keep looking and waiting for conditions to be correct for them. Well, how do they know? 
whether or not um, the tissue that they're in is dead, dying, or healthy. Now, this is my theory. Um, health, the healthy, healthy tissue has a certain voltage charge on it, a certain electrical charge to it, because that's how the membranes function to push things in and out. There's a voltage gradient. And um, when the voltage, if you take a healthy cell and lower its voltage, it becomes cancerous. And if you take a cancerous cell and raises voltage, it stops dividing. So the voltage gradient on a cell is this very simple, very powerful measurement of just how healthy that cell is. And I think what happens is um, when there's enough electricity, the worms think, oh, this is all healthy. I don't want to be here. And they leave and they look for someplace with less electricity because if there's a high electrical charge, the worms or parasites know that there's a functioning immune system, that the membranes are healthy and strong. There's not a lot there going on. It's going to be a fight. Um, whereas if the electricity is down, then what they do is um, it's easier for them to penetrate into the cell, right? There's some bugs that like to live on the insides of cells, viruses and a few bacteria. Or what I, they do is uh, they damage the membrane of the cell so that the membrane leaks and they milk their host, sucking off the exudate that's leaking out of the inside of these people's cells. And so they milk us, which is sci-fi horror. Um, so um, if our voltage is high enough and our membranes are strong and they're interrelated because in order to keep your voltage high, the membranes uh, have to be functional because they are the capacitor, they're the, uh, you know, allow the, the charge to be different in two different locations. So um, I had been playing around with this idea about grounding for a while. I, I read the book, I bought the grounding sheets, I walked barefoot, and maybe I felt a little better, um, but I didn't notice that much of a difference. And I said, hmm, well, what happens if I increase it? I'm just curious. So we built a machine that did uh, 18,000 volts, which sounds like a lot, but um, the amperage was very, very low. So, I mean, it's less power than a tiny little battery. So, you know, what you do to not figure out the amount of power is you multiply voltage um, by your current, I got that right, uh, by my amps, right? Voltage times amps gives you watts. Uh, and so there wasn't a lot of wattage, but there was an enormously high amount of voltage. And the volt, so current is uh, the um, amount of electricity that moves whereas voltage is the pressure that's pushing it, mm. if that makes sense, yeah. right? So, okay. So almost every electrical device that's out there runs on current. It pushes electricity from point A to point B. Nothing works on voltage because it's difficult because the volt, it always likes to shoot to places you don't want, you want. Think of like a Tesla coil. It's always sending sparks, lightning all over the place, right? So our whole um, uh Science, uh, modern world is based on current, the moving of electricity rather than voltage. Okay, so what, um, and then you've got these stories of people who would live under or work under or go to school under these giant electrical towers and they'd all become, you know, be coming down with diseases or leukemia or something. Um, and then the critics would say, well, look, there's cows under there all day long and they're never getting sick. What's the, so you're, you're, you're a hypochondriac. Okay, the difference is the cows are hoof, to earth. So, all right. The reason that those big wires are causing problems is not the radiation that they're putting out. It's the fact that when you have current, when you have electricity moving from point A to point B, it creates a vacuum for electrons. So it makes the area around it electron deficient. Mm. 
And so the cows that were walking and eating underneath these things had their hoofs on the ground. So any electrons that they were getting pulled away from them in the air, they were sucking back up their feet. But the little kids that were going to school there on the wearing their shoes on the carpets didn't have contact to the earth. And they were just in a very low electrical field area and they were getting sick. So um, we built a machine that would do very, very high voltage, uh, but very, very, very low amperage. So it could hurt you a little bit of a, a little bit of a shock, like touching a doorknob. Um, but it could do a lot more of what the grounding was doing, but you know, millions of times more. And I, you know, started getting really, really amazing results, both myself and other people. Um, so a lot of worms come out. Um, a lot of interesting things started coming out of people. And so the way electrons work is the sun is constantly um, uh, shedding electrons on solar winds. It, they get to the Earth's atmosphere. There's an electron transfer to the Earth. And so the surface of the Earth has a, uh, they call it neutral ground, but it's electron rich. So that, what that means is that we were raised, uh, all of life has, was raised in an electron rich environment with the exception of birds flying, any animal in the ocean or touching the ground has an infinite source of electrons to do whatever it needs to, right? So um, our bodies didn't create a way to deal with low electron levels because we have never been faced with that situation. As far as our bio biochemistry is concerned, you will always have it whenever, you, as much as you want, whenever you need it. And now we're in a situation where, because we're all wearing uh, insulated shoes on carpets on the second, third, fourth floor, surrounded by electrical items all the time, um, and the food we eat is all had its electrons removed by being cooked, and the air has had its electrons removed, trying to deal with the levels of pollution because each bit of pollution can neutralize an electron. So now we're in a situation that the that life has never had to deal with, which is uh, an electron deficient scenario. And so all these weird things start to happen for animals and humans because um, they never learned how to deal with it. So for instance, um, you know, humans have from time to time not had enough access to sodium. And so we get aldosterone and the kidneys can then say, okay, guys, we're in a low sodium environment, hang on to the sodium. Right? We, can, we can adjust that way. We have no way to adjust for low electrons, at least not yet, because we've never really experienced it up until the last 100 years. So we made this machine uh, that would um, put electrons into people. And the way I, I explain it is, imagine that you have your RV and um, you, it's, it's fall, it's winter, you're not going to use it for the winter. And so you put it, put it away. And now... Um, you put a trickle charger on it, on the batteries, so that when you go to start it in the spring, you know, the battery starts. If the battery that you put the trickle charger on was good to begin with, then when spring comes around and you want to go camping, your car starts right up. But if your battery was da damaged, it was already low, it was already, you know, maybe the, the, the day before you left the lights on on the RV, and now the battery isn't dead, but it's almost dead. And then you put a trickle charger on it. That battery, that, that it's not going to start up in the spring because the trickle charger is not designed to do that. It's not designed to recharge the battery. Or let's say even worse, if the battery is completely dead, the trickle charger will do nothing at all, right? So grounding to me is sort of like the trickle charger. Um, if you were in perfect shape to begin with, meaning you were barefoot from the day you were born, never put on shoes, never went into a city, never wore around electronics, then grounding is all you would need. 
that tiny little trickle charge coming from the earth. But mm, since that's not how we are, since we wear shoes and wear synthetic clothes that rub and pull our electrons off, and I've got elect, you know, some current going through this right now by my head and so forth and so on, creating a, an electron vacuum, then I don't think the grounding's enough. I don't, it's not a bad idea, but I don't think that um, we are gonna be able to take a dead or damaged battery and charge it to capacity with a, with a trickle charger. Um, if you have a damaged battery, what you need to do is charge the battery and then put it on a trickle charger. Now, what do you do if you have a completely dead battery? That, that thing's got, you check the voltage, it's, it's, there's nothing left. Well, normally you'd go out and buy a new battery and say, okay, and just whatever. But um, we have 31 trillion cells in our body and we can't replace them all. So we don't have the luxury of replacing all of our 31 trillion batteries. We have to repair them. It turns out there is a way to repair batteries um, you use high voltage spikes. So if you go to the high tech world and you say, hey, I've got this battery that must, um, it's got crystal, all right, what happens is when batteries fail, they crystallize. Mm -hmm. So the battery chemistry is such that as the voltage goes down, crystals form. And as long as they're kind of small and soft-ish, right? And so meaning the voltage is only going down to a certain point, then when the power comes back in, they dissolve and, and you keep doing that cycle going back and forth. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, yeah. Um, so um, the when the voltage drops, the crystals form. Um, and so, uh, you know, in a lead acid battery, it's lead sulfate, right? We have lead sulfate crystals. And it, it's a reversible process to a point. As long as the voltage stays to a certain point, the crystals can go back into back onto the plate and you can keep going back and forth with your battery. But when the voltage drops far enough down, those lead crystals, lead sulfate crystals, um, destroy the battery's capacity for taking a charge. And when the crystals get in there, you can't recover the battery because it won't take the electricity. It won't take what you're giving it. So you have to, before you can recharge that battery, before you can trickle charge a battery, it has to take a charge. Before it can take a charge, you have to break up the crystals. How do you break up the crystals? And what I found was that, um, so there's a thing called the piezoelectric effect. It's how uh, quartz watches work. And what it states is if you take a crystal and squeeze it, a little bit of electricity comes out. Mm -hmm. And uh, those little uh, lighters where you uh, pull the trigger and it clicks or the, and then it lights up something or the little acupuncture things where you press a button and it gives you a little spark, that's piezoelectric. And what I reasoned was if, if squeezing a crystal can generate electricity, then would adding electricity to a crystal cause it to vibrate? Because that's the, the same process backwards. And it turns out it is. Uh, there is a way to do that. And indeed, people had been using that uh, to recover uh, dead batteries. They would pulse elect uh, electricity into it, into the battery, blow up the crystals, recharge, and then they could recharge them and then recover the battery to a degree. So what we did is we put a pulse feature on our unit. So we have a machine that generates um, high voltage like this, and we have a pulse feature on it. So it would pulse um, with the crystals. And started studying, you know, um, crystals. And um, so, you know, the first thing I saw when I started studying crystals were the oxalates. And this is actually um, how I got into this. Um, I had, I had gotten into my head that it would be a good idea to eat um, sesame seeds, almonds, and chia seeds and cardamom. There was someone at our farmer's market that was making these cardamom, sesame seed, 
goo balls. And they sound amazing, by the way. Uh, yeah. okay. <laughs> and I was eating these, I was eating these, and then I'm using the machine and the machine, this was a prototype and the machine starts to pulse. The machine, you know, failed and was, it was zapping me. And um, the next day, all of this debris came out in my urine. And so I was like, wow, what was that? Um, and so, so uh, two days later, so I stopped using the machine. I was like, oh my God, did I hurt myself? Did I damage myself? Two days later, I was in the hospital with my first kidney stone, uh, which was not a pleasant experience. And, you know, they couldn't do anything but give me painkillers. Um, and I go home after passing, we're having one pass through. And then oh, I'm laying in bed and all of a sudden I'm like, oh no. And I felt a second one move because it turns out there was another one there. And I'd given myself kidney stones from all the oxalates, all those things I told you about, cardamom, sesame seed, chia seed, almonds are all as high as you can get on the oxalate level. Oxalate is this um, uh, material, this is compound in plants that they use to provide structure and to store minerals, but it also turns into calcium oxalate in the body, which is what kidney stones are made out of. So I gave myself kidney stones by eating this stupid diet. And, I, and so here I am with them again, and I'm laying in bed for 24 hours. I can't move, I'm crawling around, I'm, I'm, you know, and the only thing that's keeping me going is I'm going to figure out how to fix this and I'm going to keep other people from going through it. That's, that's the only thought I could hang on to. I'm like, okay, I'm going to find some way to make this useful. And after 36 hours of being awake straight, I said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm at my wit's end. I, I haven't got much left. And I said, well, did that machine cause me to get kidney stones? No, no. The kidney stones were there already. What did the machine do? The machine broke up the stones. Okay, I'm going to take a rest. And so I, I drag myself out of the couch and I have my, my sweetie. I said, I should bring me the machine. And I placed it over, you know, the lower abdomen by the groin where the, the greatest pain was. And she goes, are you sure? I'm like, no. <laughs> and we turn it on and you, you count to 20 and I'm asleep. I'm, I thought I'm gone. First sleep I've had in 36 hours. Oh my God, it was so good. Because the pain was so great. Um, and I wake up five minutes later and I'm like, it's, it's gone the pain's gone. I move around because I'm thinking maybe it's still there. Nope. That was it. And what I realized was the first time I'd used the machine and it, it had misfired, I had broken up kidney stones on one, on one side. I think it was the right side. And had I kept going, I would have gotten them out the left side and I would have been done. But because I didn't, I got to have this learning experience. And so when I went back to it and I did it, I was able to break the stones up and flush it out in my sleep. And so um, now I'm in love with this thing. And so I'm studying crystals and I'm studying the oxalates and um, crystals form all throughout the body. And, um, you know, there are lots of crystals that are supposed to have, right? You know, um, the magnesium, potassium, the sodium, and the calcium can bond to, cal to the sulfates and phosphates to make all of our connective tissues and, and all sorts of good things in us. But if we have metals, you know, um, like lead, can combine to phosphate and uh, or, uh, or sulfate and make lead sulfate and lead phosphate crystals in the body. And mercury can combine to um, sulfate and phosphate. So toxic metals can cause crystals, oxalates are crystals, uric acids are crystals. We've got crystals all over the place. And they not only can cause, you know, those kind of painful issues, but they also are a sign that the body's voltage is dropping because you're not able to... Um, they, they, they can show up in the voltage as well. 
So, uh, you know, um, rebuilt the machine again. Uh, once we figured out, okay, because the prototype, you know, after using it, you know, eight, all that time, it, it failed. I said, okay, let's see what, all right, this part here, this part there. Okay, we need to change that. You know, let's let's give the option for pulsing. And so we did. And so now the electron charger can do three things. It can pulse, you know, for the crystals. Uh, and then you can have it on high power for when you have to charge the person. And then you can have a low power for a trickle charger. And my experience with it was uh, the first few weeks when I had it, I was on it hours and hours a day on much higher voltage levels than we will do now. Um, and now a year and a half, two years later, and, and I have to do that every day, every day. And maybe six months into it, uh, I got to the point where um, I'm like, oh, I might forget a day. And it didn't bother me. And then now two years later, if I don't use it for a day or two or three, it's no problem. And I use it on the lowest setting. So I'm at the trickle point charged. Right? But it took me two years of clearing all the crystals out of me to do that. So if you use something like this, take a look at your urine, because if you see all sorts of hazy crystalline material coming out, um, you know, that's an indication that um, the diet you're on might not be suitable for you. Because a lot of the things that we're told are good for us, like um, spinach, right? Spinach was um, popularized um, during the Depression for, for food. It wasn't really eaten by people that much. Uh, because it was cheap uh, nutrition. And so they came up with a Popeye character to convince people to eat spinach. You know, that was a big ad campaign. Wow. Um, what we don't recognize is spinach is enormously high in oxalates. And so, you know, we're doing things that we think are good for us. We're eating lots of nuts and seeds and eating certain um, spices and doing spinach and doing kale and taking getting enormous degrees of oxalates in um, and there are ways to, to uh, incorporate dairy into the diet. So for instance, you know, historically speaking, um, in Indian cooking, they would mix uh, spinach with the paneer with cheese because the oxalic acid of the spinach would bind to the calcium um, in the cheese. And then you make calcium oxalate and it wouldn't be absorbed as well. So there are ways of using, um, you know, traditional cooking um, to, to work with this. But if you start dumping lots and lots of crystals, you know, you might want to take a look at the diet and ask yourself um, if the foods you're eating are very high in oxalates. And part of the tricky part is the same food grown in two different locations can have two totally different oxalate levels. Mm. I don't know what kind of stressor the plant goes through, whether it's pesticides or, you know, climactic or soil-based, but you can definitely see that um, two different versions of the exact same plant grown in two different ways. One will have a lot of oxalates, one won't. So, um, that's, uh, that's where we got to with the electron stuff is, um, uh, we got there through crystals. Well, I'm glad you brought that up with, um, the, the ways of cooking. Cause as you were speaking, I'm thinking, you know, that's, that's the Indian diet, you know, growing mm -hmm. up with Indian food, like cardamom, almonds, spinach, all of it. But, you know, when you look at the population and, and seeing the way my grandma would make the food, it was all combined and spinach was never eaten raw. Mm -hmm. It was always cooked. So I think there's ways. And because when we're doing organic testing on many, especially kids, we're seeing a lot of high oxalates mm -hmm. and adults as well. So, you know, bringing it back to that conversation of kids with ADHD and even autism, I see high levels of oxalate. So I'm curious with this machine, if this is also something that can be used on children. I'm, I'm always thinking about our kids, you know, mm -hmm. how we can make them healthier and um, thrive in their lives because um, yeah, we want to make sure we're doing all the right things for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could definitely use it with kids mm -hmm. um, or animals. Uh, the when so when your mother and your grandmother were cooking the spinach, 
um, you'll 30% of the oxalic acid will come away once you cook it, it goes into the water, right? Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. And yeah, it's, it, you know, they were, they were food scientists, right? They, they understood that, that there are some ways in which you can take foods that if you prepare them properly, it's really great, you know, and if you don't, then we could have some problems. Um, so absolutely, you can do that with, um, with the electrons. The other thing you can do is uh, you can do Epsom salt baths um, because magnesium will uh, increase the solubility of oxalates, I think 200 fold. Mm. Uh, and there's some other biochemistry there we could get into as well. So uh, yeah, you know, oxalates, um, they're a challenge and, you know, the, uh, the electrons actually uh, took me to another product, uh, two other systems that the body normally uses to keep their genes, their genetic line good. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Love I love that too. Yeah, wow. thank you. I mean, this is such an amazing podcast. We have to like send this out to everyone we know. <laughs> There's so much information here that is so needed in today's world. Yeah. And I just love how you brought so many different elements to a, a state that we can understand and really apply in our everyday lives. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. I, I just I see more conversations to come. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Can't wait to see what your brain creates next. I mean, it's just it's remarkable. So oh, we want to make sure people can access your resources. So uh, please tell us all the best places to to get in touch with your your work, the work that you do. Uh, the website that we use is a uh, remedy link, R-E-M-E-D-Y-L-I-N-K.com. And uh, there's some videos there that talk about some of the things we do and you know, if any of the products seem like there's something that might help or you want to experiment with, you know, they're all available. Amazing. Thank you again, Spencer. Mm -hmm. I do want to ask one question, mm. if I can, just for two minutes, because <laughs> I like to kind of end off on like oh, a, yeah. a bigger picture note, because uh, mm -hmm. you're doing such amazing work. And what would be the one message that you want to give to humanity today about their innate ability to heal? Mm. I would say that epigenetics also apply to your state of mind. And, you know, we live at a time when media is being, is fomenting division and, you know, Republican versus Democrat and so forth and so on. Um, that, that when we're forgiving and we're kind and we're generous and we walk in faith that that has an effect on our health epigenetically that it's not just oh if i take something bitter that i'm having a conversation with my genes that when you are grateful and when you're kind and generous and walk in faith that has an effect on your genes too and that is something that you can do at any point in time to access the the best uh, version of your health. And, you know, I think that um, humanity's got some really tough lessons coming up, but uh, through, you know, the work of great people like yourselves, there's, there's, there's so many people behind the scenes who are working really hard at coming up with solutions. And I would say that have faith, you know, it's, it's tough now, you know, but uh, we're going to come out the other end of this better, you know, kinder, healthier. And, you know, we've got our work cut out for us, but um, 
stay in faith. You know, you still got to work hard. You still got to, you know, do all the stuff that you're you're best at, whatever that is. But uh, that if you do the best you can with what you've got, you know, that we'll all make it. beautiful soul. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Health Ignited podcast. Be sure to download, subscribe, and share as we build this conscious community together. You can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and our website, drsjensen.com. Please note all information on this podcast is not and should not be taken as medical advice. Please see a healthcare professional to receive the care needed. Thank you for sharing this time with us, igniting your health freedom. And welcome to the tribe.